What is up? This is Evan Lovett, and thanks for tuning in to my podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett, an Odyssey original brought to you by yours truly, your host, Evan Lovett, where you may know me from my social media page, LA In a Minute. I'd love to invite you along for a personal and intimate ride as I share interesting facts about all sorts of things you didn't know that you needed to know. Be entertained and informed as I bring you into my mind to see the world through my lens. There's history everywhere, as long as you know where to look. Let's get into it. Yo, episode number 34, which happened to be my jersey number in high school, baseball player, as you know. It was a very special number to me growing up, and a special number to Los Angeles. Bo Jackson, best athlete I ever saw. Raiders, my team growing up, number 34. Fernando Valenzuela, come on, you know what he means to the Dodgers, to the fan base, to the community. Number 34. And my favorite player growing up, Kirby Puckett, who played in Minnesota for the Twins, but was also number 34 and was the reason why I was number 34. So this is indeed a special episode for me. Coming to you live from the IM Studios here in the heart of Los Angeles. And this week, there is a ton of ground to cover because did you know there are at least 3,000 songs about Los Angeles? And I'm going to dive into the five that I think are the most historically important. And they might also happen to be some of my all-time favorites. So not just from a musical perspective, but historical and personal as well. It's a really fun episode. And again, a special episode. Number 34, baby. The most important songs about L.A. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. Okay, so we start with something that happened in L.A. this week that inspired this episode. They finally arrested what may be Tupac's murderer. Or more precisely, the man alleged with passing the gun to Tupac's murderer, who apparently passed away. And Tupac was murdered 27 years ago. So it's interesting. That happened in Vegas. And he wrote a tell-all novel, The Man Who Passed the Gun, five years ago. So I'm wondering what it took the Vegas PD to arrest him, why it took him that long. But either way, that's not the crux of this episode. What that headline brought to mind for me was one of my favorite Tupac songs. To Live and Die in L.A., which happens to be one of my favorite songs ever about L.A. And listen, there have been a mountain of songs about Los Angeles. So I wanted to sit down and just flesh that out. What are the greatest L.A. songs in history? That's too subjective. And that always comes down to what genre do you like? Rock people, rap people, electro, I mean, country, who knows? There's all kinds of different genres. So that's subjective. But what are the most important songs in LA history. Maybe, just maybe I can look as objectively as possible from a historical and impact perspective and try to craft a list. Now look, it's going to be subjective because it's got to be songs I like too, but I, I take a good approach here. So first, I had to get the master list. Where do you even start finding all the songs about Los Angeles? You can probably think of a dozen off your head, honestly. But I went to Wikipedia, always a good starting point. And there, sure enough, is an entry, Songs About L.A. You ready for this? There's more than 3,000 of them. 
including 685 with Hollywood in the title, 26 with Beverly Hills in the title, and 17 about Compton. Now, to tell you the truth, I grew up West Coast hip-hop dude. I could probably name 20-plus about Compton, so there's no way that this is an exhaustive list. But it's like I said, it's a good starting point. But on that list, there are 28 songs called City of Angels and 18 called City of the Angels. And 34, there's that number again, simply called L.A. So that is a ton of songs to sift through, all right? So where to begin? Where, where do I start? Even wrapping my arms around that. Well, I'm going to start with personal experience because that's what I know. And I got to talk about three things that probably made me the music connoisseur that I am today. I'm not as hardcore as I was maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, right after college. But I still love my stuff and I take it pretty seriously. But my first musical memory was at a Michael Jackson concert. It was the Victory Tour Dodger Stadium in 1984. Somehow he was on my radar, King of Pop, and he's my favorite artist. And my parents took me. I remember we were sitting way the heck up in the nosebleeds. And I remember seeing him lip sync, but he wore that shiny glove. They had the diamond vision on the screen, and I was happy. Dodger Stadium. And the next up, and this one was more seminal, and this is going to dovetail into, into where we're going with this. But I was in Washington, D.C. with my parents and my mom's parents, so my grandparents at the time, in 1986. If you've been listening to In a Minute with Evan Lovett, you know my parents were pretty, pretty lenient, so they'd leave me alone in the hotel room so they could go party. And... To leave me in the hotel room, they first took me to a little mall in the area and I bought two cassette tapes and a Walkman. The two cassette tapes were the Beat Street soundtrack. Beat Street, the king of the beat. You see him rocking that beat from across the street. (laughs) Um, And then Raising Hell, Run DMC. So these albums, those were the foundation of what was about to come next. Flash forward to 1989, 10 years old. Pinecrest Elementary School in Northridge. There was a kid named Donald Miller in my class. He was the son of one of the dudes in Rose Royce who had that song Car Wash. At the car wash. He brought the NWA vinyl record to school one day. Okay? 1989. And it was mostly a showpiece. And none of us could believe it. None of us could understand it. But we snuck into the class and played it on the record player. Yes, there was a record player. I don't know where the teacher was or how we got into the class as some sixth graders. But... My ears just about popped out of my brain. I was not ready. But two years after that, I was at this baseball camp at Cal State Northridge. And a kid, one of my very good friends, David Lusk, to this day, he brought in DJ Quick's still amazing debut album. Quick is the name. And listen, if you've heard that album, the content, the lyrics, the profanity are probably too much to a... 12, 13 year old at the time, but I was hooked, man. That track tonight is still one of my favorite tracks. And here we go. Born and raised in Compton to segue back to this episode was one of the last songs cut from the list that I'm about to present, but that is an important Los Angeles song. And it's worth noting that 30 years later, DJ quick remains relevant, not just as a super producer and underrated rapper, but as a talented musician, his work continues to impact LA and beyond. So shout out to my guy, DJ Quick. And on that note, there is so much West Coast hip hop that can make this list. But I need to put historical context on this. 
And I can't just pick my five favorite from that era, What Made Me. So I'm choosing songs that, to me, combine visual and auditory imagery that is unmistakably Los Angeles and have history to it and have a story to it. And as always, I want to know your feedback. I got to know your most important L.A. songs. And again, there's so many to choose from. Some are going to be left off the list, but hit me in the DMs. Hit me in the comments on the post. You know I always put up posts about the podcast every Friday. So with apologies to Quicks, born and raised in Compton, apologies to Ice Cubes, it was a good day, and NWA straight out of Compton, three of my personal favorites. Here are the five songs that really had the most impact, were the most important about Los Angeles. Number five, Under the Bridge, Red Hot Chili Peppers. The city of angels. No. So look, terrible singing voice. We all know that. Okay. But the story. So listen to this. So the Red Hot Chili Peppers, they're somewhat polarizing. Some of my friends kind of make fun of the lyrics. Other ones love them. I, I like them. I'm a hip hop guy, but they, they kind of broke through for me. And they've sold over 100 million records worldwide. So they broke through for a lot of people. They're one of the best selling bands of all time. And Under the Bridge may be their most famous song. I'm not sure of that. I'm not the authoritative figure for Red Hot Chili Peppers. But it was recorded in spring of 1991 and released in March of 1992. And it was their highest charting single ever. It peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and was certified platinum. But along with the imagery on this song, which we'll dive into, the story of how this song came to be is something special and something very LA, okay? They were producing the 1991 album Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And producer Rick Rubin, who's been all over every podcast recently, a lot of TikTok videos. I mean, one of those geniuses that's just eccentric, but genius. He used to have visits with Anthony Kiedis, the lead singer of Red Hot Chili Peppers, to review his new material. And he found a poem in Kiedis's notebook. It was called Under the Bridge. And Rubin took an interest in the poignant lyrics. And he suggested that Kiedis show it to the rest of the band. Now, Kiedis was reluctant. I mean, it was his most personal work. He felt the poem was too emotional. It didn't fit into the Red Hot Chili Pepper style. But he sang the poem to the band. John Frusciante, I'm probably pronounced that wrong. I know I've heard the name a thousand times, Frusciante, sorry. And drummer Chad Smith. And they immediately got up and walked over their instruments and started finding the beat and guitar chords to match it. And the guitar chord specifically balanced the rather dark lyrics. And Frushanti said, I thought if the lyrics are really sad like that, I should write some chords that are happier. So that's an interesting juxtaposition that in itself already sets the song off on a very unique note, right? So they worked together on the song for several days. And it was one of the few tracks completed on the album before the band moved into what was known as the mansion, which is where they actually recorded the rest of the album. But after the song was recorded, Rick Rubin steps in again. And he said he felt the grand ending would benefit from a large group of singers. And get this. Frusciante invited his mom, his own mom, Gail, and her friend, both of whom sang in a choir when they were younger, to perform that, perform that part. So that's pretty interesting that dude's mom was in the track. And like, that's just another element. I mean, come on. That's, that's a good element of a serious, legendary song. 
And now the lyrics are, I'm not gonna say straightforward, but pretty easy to, to understand. Sometimes I feel like I don't have a partner. Sometimes I feel like my only friend is the city I live in, the city of angels, lonely as I am, together we cry. I mean, it's pretty straightforward, deep, depressing. And Kiedis wrote this. He wrote the lyrics during a period of deep depression, as well as admitted heroin and cocaine addiction. So it's really from the depths of his soul and the depths of Los Angeles. But here's the thing. He had written the song in 1988. And by 91, he was sober for about three years. And he felt that his sobriety distanced himself from his bandmates who still at the time continued to use together. And he felt specifically that Frusciante was no longer in this world. So as he was writing, the feelings of alienation led him to feel that the city of Los Angeles was his only companion. In his words, there was a non-human entity, maybe the spirit of the hills in the city, who had me in her sights and was looking after me. He said that those lines, the, I feel like the city is my only friend, city I live in, city of angels. He said that it links his isolation and his sense of susceptibility. And then the third, third verse goes in to discuss the effects of drugs, the role in destroying Ketis's relationships and their impact on his happiness. But it also recounts his experience entering gang territory under a bridge to buy drugs. And he said that under that bridge, buying drugs was one of his lowest moments. He pretended that the sister of one of the gang members was his fiance. And that was how he got in to, to buy the drugs. And he said it demonstrated the level to which he was willing to sink for his addiction. But here's the funny thing. The bridge location, which bridge it is, remains somewhat of a mystery. He's refused to reveal the location. He says that it is in greater downtown Los Angeles. And the three contenders are MacArthur Park, but that means the bridge wasn't under a freeway. The Belmont Tunnel, which is about a half mile from MacArthur Park, and the overpass where the 10 crosses Hoover Street. If you know, let me know. Shoot me a DM. I couldn't find a conclusive answer. I felt saw many authoritative answers, but nothing conclusive. Now, the band nor the label didn't expect Under the Bridge to be a commercial success. The audiences, however, immediately loved it. When they started playing at shows, the band would begin singing the song. And he's, Anthony Kiedis said he was mortified when the music exec said that was their next single. But it was a bona fide across all formats radio hit and it spent 26 weeks in the Hot 100. And the critical reception, even to this day, is pretty outstanding, especially considering some of Red Hot Chili Peppers' iffy kind of lyrics. And now the video legendary Gus Van Sant in the future of Goodwill Hunting fame shot on the streets of L.A. and a soundstage. Kiedis walking the streets of L.A. wearing a T-shirt with the words to hell and back. Stands before that Belmont Tunnel. Hint, hint. Before its closure. If you look now, it's closed. So maybe that was it. Well, I won't say it. But... They wanted it to capture an outdoor streets of L.A. thing. And at the end, that famous scene of Kiedis running slow motion, yes, is literally in the L.A. River. So the song has become an inspiration to artists for the last 30 plus years. And it's a seminal component of the alt-rock movement of the 90s. And it will always be known as one of the consummate and most important Los Angeles songs. Number four. Here we are. 
to live and die in L.A. by Tupac, or in this case, Machiavelli. This is the callback to my West Coast hip-hop roots, okay? And this is the Tupac ode to the metropolis he loved the most, Los Angeles. Now, Tupac was born in New York. He attended ballet school. He lived in Baltimore. He lived in Oakland. But man, you know that. Was it a character? At the end, Tupac embraced Los Angeles. And Los Angeles embraced Tupac. He almost had a Kobe-like aura in Los Angeles, dare I say. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's that's the, the parallel I draw. But to live and die in LA was essentially California love part two. And even though, as with much of Tupac's commercial work, the lyrics aren't super deep, he covers a good amount of ground and he's visually evocative. Good observations of LA. Starts off even just <laughs> still the only place for me. Never rains in the sun. I mean, come on, it's the LA cliche. One of the lines, late night down sunset, like in the scene. It's the city of angels, constant danger. South Central LA can't get no stranger. Everybody in LA got a little bit of thug in them. We might fight with each other, but I promise you this. We burn this bitch down, get us pissed to live and die in LA. I mean, there's a lot in here. All right, all right. It's it's not deep, but it is observational. I mean, would it be LA without Mexicans? Come on. This is a Mexican city from day one. Black love, brown pride in the sets again. I mean, talks about K-Day, the radio station. So look, that's a real, that's a real LA song right here. And it was in a very important time for me growing up. And what's funny, he throws in a little Lebowski at the end. You'll know what I mean. Getting high watching Tom fly to live and die in LA. So look, it kind of covers LA, man. Immigrants, gangs, the sun, the streets, smoking weed it's la that's tupac and now the funny thing about that is this comes from his fifth album machiavelli the don Columinati, the seven day theory and that album was recorded in one week in august of 1996 a month before he was murdered in las vegas and it was released in november as machiavelli and man, L.A. was hyped. The United States was hyped. The world was hyped for this. It was coming off his double album, All Eyes on Me, which was an instant L.A. classic. But this was like, I don't want to use that word underground because underground in hip-hop means something dramatically different. But for us West Coasters, it was an underground. It was a little grimier, a little bit like not as commercial sounding Tupac. And especially in light of his passing, it seemed to make sense. And immediately reached number one on, on the Billboard 200. Sold 600,000 copies first week. Now, EDI, who is a member of the Outlaws, Tupac's like on-again, off-again group, said that To Live and Die in L.A. was Tupac's favorite song on Machiavelli. Here's the quote. He loved the whole groove. To Live and Die in L.A., a real L.A. song. Drop tops, 80 degrees down sunset. It gave him the feeling of being in L.A., and he loved that city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. comes out in the song you watch the video and the song was produced by qd3 who's the son of quincy jones one of the all-time greatest musicians and producers and he worked with Pac a few times and he produced that song maybe or maybe not because tupac was dating qd3's sister kadada jones at the time but 
QD3 said that Tupac finished all three verses on To Live and Die in L.A. in 15 minutes. Now, I remember hearing that, and I still hear that with other MCs, and this is a little bit of sidebar. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that you could write that quick. It's incredible to be that prolific, but it means, did you really think about it? Is it really perfect? But that's a different story. But either way, what he's getting at is that he was inspired. He got down the verse, boom, 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 let's get in and record. And the vocalist you hear on that, Val Young, that who does a chorus to live and die in LA is the place to be. You got to be there to know it. Everybody want to see the chorus. She did hers in one take. So this came together fast, almost like it was, let's say meant to be. And the funny thing is when Tupac recorded, he went into the booth without telling anybody what it was all about. And he did those three verses in one take. So with her doing the chorus and him doing the song in one take, that's pretty damn impressive one way or the other to come out like that in the final product, right? And QD3 said, to close it out, he says, the song just flowed out of everyone. No one thought twice. No one doubted anything. It was full speed ahead until it was done as if it was guided or meant to be. And QD3 said that changed the way he looks at making music ever since then. And there it is. That is a story behind To Live and Die in L.A., number four most important song, Los Angeles. Now, number three is a little bit of an outlier. I'm not going to kid you, okay? It's, it's kind of even outlandish conceptually, but it keeps coming up in my research, all right? In my L.A. in a Minute research, if I ever come into any neighborhood in one of the largest areas in Los Angeles... This song comes up in that research. This song actually impacts the transformation of that major part of Los Angeles from plenty agricultural to full-on suburban. I'm talking about the San Fernando Valley and specifically the song San Fernando Valley by Bing Crosby. Huh? You may not have heard it. This thing came out in the 1940s, 1944. Now, you got to remember, there are a few pop culture figures that resonated with the American troops in World War II, the way Bing Crosby did. He was a tireless figure on the USO tours in Europe, and he had this rich, dignified baritone. He did White Christmas, I'll Be Home for Christmas, and these weary soldiers would hear the sound of his voice on the home front and the promise of peacetime that his songs offered. So in 1944, when San Fernando Valley came out, it not only hit number one in the United States, but the GIs, the vets, and the soldiers heard it, and it was a call to build their post-war lives in the new Eden out west, the San Fernando Valley. Listen to this lyric. I'm packing my grip. I'm leaving today. I'm taking a trip California way. I'm going to settle down and never more roam and make the San Fernando Valley my home. I mean, if the Valley's Chamber of Commerce wrote a civic anthem to sell the, the wood frame homes cropping up in America's suburbs that were replacing the orange groves, they couldn't have come up with something better. And the song was actually written by a guy named Gordon Jenkins, who also was a screenwriter 
and wrote a movie the year before with the same name. And the movie was filmed in the San Fernando Valley, the agricultural former wheat ranches, uh, avocados, lemons, pomegranate, all that. And the movie quickly faded from memory, but the song became a hit, which actually embarrassed Gordon Jenkins, the songwriter. And he said the songwriter, listen to this. He said he hated the song. He said he thought it was junk, something that might pay some bills. But then it turned into a smash hit. And he said later, you sure feel differently about a song once the checks start rolling in. Kind of like the San Fernando Valley. I know this from my brethren that have moved to the valley from over the hill. I don't like the valley. I don't like the valley. Yeah, well, once you start waking up here, it's kind of a different story, right? And it's funny because Jenkins himself moved to Los Angeles from Missouri. And he wanted to actually do scores in Hollywood films. He ended up writing movies and living in Sherman Oaks, San Fernando Valley, to avoid the politics of Hollywood. And at the time, it was quaint. Again, you it wasn't rural, but the valley still had a lot of land, open land. And it inspired his reference to hit the trail in cow country. Another lyric in the song. And the lyrics that resonated with these GIs, with the military people, it's probably something like this. It's from the song again. I'll forget my sins. I'll make new friends. Where the West begins and the sunset ends. Because I've decided where yours truly should be. It's the San Fernando Valley for me. Now, as for songwriter Jenkins, (laughs) he moved to Malibu after cashing all those checks from the songs two years later in 1946. But that song is responsible for the growth of the San Fernando Valley from going from an outskirt podunk cow town to now what would be the sixth biggest metropolitan area in the United States if it was its own city. Think about that. San Fernando Valley, most important song about LA, number three. Next up. This is a track I messed around with quite a bit during my acid rock wishing I lived in the 60s or early 70s era, the era my parents actually did live in. I used to actually be envious because they got to grow up and be real hippies and do all that free love stuff and just live in that tumult, political and otherwise, the 60s. Such an interesting time in L.A. And the song was L.A. Woman by The Doors. Mm Mm-hmm. So L.A. Woman is the title track from their last album. And it's it's nocturnal. It's it's noirish. It's the city of night. And it's very Jim Morrison, who, by the way, UCLA student, at least part-time was. And L.A., man, that was the doors. All four of them were doors. L.A., inseparable, define that era. But Morrison was the explorer and his lyrics laid bare what the city could do and what the city did to him. And it's a tribute to L.A., but it's not overwhelmingly positive. Now, Morrison came to the city as a UCLA film student. and He was convinced that the sunny glamour of the city was just a superficial facade, which some would say is still the case. He may have been drawn to the city's dark underbelly regardless But the song chronicles 
one of the city's lost and alienated souls in a city of disease and despair. And the instrumentation from the doors, Manzarek, Krieger, Densmore, fantastic. It's like an eight-minute song, and it deserves to be even longer. And there's a guest guitarist on the song, Mark Benno. And he said he saw Morrison's lyrics. And his lyrics were in this enormous leather-bound notebook that he had received as a gift. And he called it his L.A. phone book, but it was really full of poems, lyrics, and drawings. This guy, Benno, said he saw the lyrics for L.A. Woman, and he's like, that is a great blues song. And now the doors were kind of bluesy. Like, you listen, I think it's inarguable that it's, it's rock. I don't even know how you categorize it, but there's a lot of blues in there. And... Robbie Krieger of the Doors, as far as what the song meant, he said, I was never stupid enough to ask Jim what his lyrics meant. He would have never given a straight answer. But he said he thinks that the L.A. woman was the city of Los Angeles. He's talking about driving on the freeway. He thinks about the intersection of the 405 and the 10, which was designed by a woman. And it kind of opens up like a pair of legs. So there's some sexual innuendo there. And... John Densmore, another member of the door, says, Mr. Mojo Rising. Now, I've heard this little anecdote. I didn't know it was in the context of this song, but Jim Morrison wrote Mr. Mojo Rising on a board, and he moves the letters around. It's an anagram for his name. He uses the same letters, just different order. And mojo was a sexual term. Again, the 405 and the 10, the woman opening her legs. I mean, that's a stretch, but it is what it is. But mojo was a sexual term from the blues. And so Densmore said that at that part, when they do that little breakdown with Mojo Rising, he was going to go slow and dark with the tempo and like the music matches that. And he says he slowly sped it up like an orgasm. And he was trying to approximate the same tempo. And he said he overshot a little bit. It's a little too fast. But guess what? Sometimes you get excited when you have sex. Los Angeles, sex. He said the lyrics inspired the band to play in a state of high excitement when recording and they dug their teeth into the song it was about passion hauling ass they said they were they felt like they were on the 101 and you can feel and hear their enthusiasm and krieger says he considers this the quintessential doors song which is saying a lot because they might be the quintessential la band and they say it was magical the way it came about now it's funny is morrison a lot of Interesting stories. If you've seen the movie, he recorded the vocals to this song in a studio bathroom to get a fuller sound. But they say he was always in there anyway because he was drinking so much during the sessions. Now, L.A. Woman has been viewed as Morrison's final goodbye to Los Angeles before he moved to Paris. And that'll be the last album recorded with Jim Morrison because he passed away there at the age of 27. He's found dead in the bathtub of his Parisian uh, tub of his hotel room. And Ellie woman was Morrison's swan song. So, I mean, that era, what that era meant to the Los Angeles music scene then and now, what that created and the doors being the consummate L.A. band, the song L.A. woman, powerful, sexy, dark, noir. I mean, that is... Los Angeles. And I think for me, there's no arguing that that's one of the most important songs about Los Angeles. So on to number one. Now for me, this is powerful. 
This is one of my all-time favorite songs, regardless of genre. I mean, this song is so enveloping for me that it single-handedly broke down my hip-hop short-sightedness and made me check out Guns N' Roses. I'm talking about the dark, soaring, high-octane L.A. soundtrack, Welcome to the Jungle. If there is a song more appropriate for driving in L.A., for nightlife in L.A., I haven't heard it. This song, at its core, it's perfect for what L.A. was, especially that scene, the Sunset Strip in the 80s. You're talking, we harken back to, to L.A. Woman, that was the burgeoning scene in the 60s, the 80s, some people call its peak. I mean, think about that latex, that long hair, that glam rock. That was the L.A. scene and that was Sunset. And this is when media is really entering a new era and all kinds of lights, Melrose, all this kind of stuff. And the song at its core, it's centered around leaving a small town and adapting to the bright lights, the big nights, the debauchery. And a new life in Hollywood. Guitarist. Guns N' Roses guitarist Izzy Stradlin said it was about the Hollywood streets come true to life. And this entire Guns N' Roses album, Appetite for Destruction, was filled with sex and drugs and excess. And it centered around these bandmates who were partying and just legends in the scene. This was the 80s in Los Angeles. Drugs were everywhere. Girls, guys, Hollywood, Sunset Strip, Melrose. And I love this quote from Slash, man. Fairfax High, by the way, I believe, along with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We never conform to anybody else's expectations or standards or commercial demands. No fucking gimmicks. This was just rock and roll from the streets of Los Angeles. Boom. God, I love that. I mean, even in the video, Axl Rose. Fucking Axl Rose. Wow, that guy was amazing. Wow. Axl Rose, by the way, I saw a, a chart. He has the most vocal range of any singer all time, male or female. Pull that up. You can look up vocal range, Axl Rose. It's incredible. Um, guy really was talented and just captivating. I uh, also love the images of old fat Axl sitting down while still just killing it on the notes. But in the video, Axl Rose steps off a Greyhound bus onto the dark and dirty Sunset Strip and right away is offered drugs by a drug dealer, played by Izzy Stradlin. And that's the opening scene of the video. And that sets the tone for Welcome to the Jungle. Setting the scene around the deeper meaning of the song. It mirrors the real life scenario for Rose and Stradlin, who were high school friends back in Lafayette, Indiana. Transplants, anyone? And they moved to LA and formed the band Hollywood Rose in 1983. And what's funny there was an earlier track in the original lineup of Guns N' Roses, which formed 1985. It was initially written off of one riff slash played on an acoustic guitar for Axl Rose. And he played it for him when Rose was living in Slash's mom's house in the basement of the house that Slash shared with his mom. I mean, I love those origin stories, like how Guns N' Roses came together and how this legendary, amazing song came together. And Slash says, I had this riff. And I said, I played it for Axel on acoustic guitar. And I said, check this out. So they played around with the riff and they took it to rehearsal and they fleshed it out within three hours with the rest of the band. So Slash composed most of the music for Welcome to the Juggle, for Jungle. 
But McKagan incorporated a breakdown of a song called The Fake, which he wrote back in 1978 when he was in a Seattle punk band called Veins. So Slash said it was really the first thing that the entire band collaborated on, and it was a combination of everybody's input. And again, check this out from Slash. I don't want to say bluesy, but it had kind of a soulful feel. Again, blues. Interesting. L.A., man. There's something about those L.A. nights that'll do that to you. And Slash said this wasn't something, this was something that happened spontaneously. This was the whole discovering ourselves period from 85 to 86 when we were living haphazardly, getting together and jamming. We knew there was something going on that not a lot of people had. And this song just had the natural feel that was very cool. And now Axl Rose, okay? He came up with the song title and the lyrics, indeed inspired by his own journey as a 20-year-old moving to Hollywood from Indiana and inspired by an encounter he had with, this is L.A., a homeless man when he and a friend were stepping off a bus and said, you know where you are? You're in the jungle, baby. You're going to die. That's what the homeless dude said to Axl Rose. So listen to these lyrics. Welcome to the jungle. It gets worse here every day. You learn to live like an animal in the jungle where we play. If you got a hunger for what you see, you'll take it eventually. You can have anything you want, but you better not take it from me. And they say it was just stark and honest. If you lived in L.A. and lived in the trenches, you could relate to it. And Slash said, knowing Axel, I knew exactly where it was coming from. So... The essence of Welcome to the Jungle is pure guns and roses, high velocity, high impact, aggressive, but emotionally subtle. And the band grasped that. And the music told that story. And it all came together. And there was something magical in that. And that's what makes that LA's number one most important song. But guess what? I lied. There's one more. One more that had to be included. I don't know where to rank this. And I left it off the list intentionally, but it has to be included in this episode. I cannot leave off I Love LA by Randy Newman. This is the anthem of the Lakers, the Dodgers, and honestly, of Los Angeles. So I'm going to lead with this. It's funny. The New York Times recently did a think piece. This is like 40 years later. Song came out in... 1983. So we're still talking about it in the New York Times of all things in 2023. The Think Piece headline, Think Piece in quotes, was Does the songwriter of I Love LA actually love LA? And guess what? Randy Newman was born in LA, graduated from University High. So whatever he thinks about LA is valid. And wherever he's coming from on this song is true to his LA heart. So let's dive in. So Randy Newman was a prolific songwriter. I mean, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's, he's well, for his composi- lyrical compositions. And he had released six albums already by 1979. And, you know, after six albums, you get pretty burnt out, I guess. So he procrastinated writing songs for a follow-up album. So he said he spent the next four years lounging at home. He said that he was so often lounging by the pool that the gardener had to water around him. But he knew he had to get this next album out, Lucky Number 7. And to counter this lackadaisical lifestyle, 
He rented a recording studio in L.A. in 1983. No phones, no distractions. Got focused, recorded a song called Something to Sing About, which boasts about suburban opulence. You know, that, that's L.A., parts of L.A. in a nutshell. But the producer didn't like the song, and he's like, that's not going in your next album. So he was a little irked. And look, Randy Newman's sardonic, right? So the, the suburban opulence was... It was a message really of delusion and arrogance. And that is what inspired I Love L.A. Along with a conversation he had with Don Henley, the drummer for the Eagles. Henley had once told Newman that he couldn't afford to charter Lear Jets. And Newman responded sarcastically. He said, Jesus, that's tough. Sure can't live on a couple million a year anymore. So Henley sort of chuckled. And he said Newman should write a song about Los Angeles. And that conversation, as well as what happened with that song, Something to Sing About, not only served as inspiration for I Love L.A., but those themes, hedonism, disillusion, it kind of underlined Newman's entire album. But let's, let, let's talk about this song. So this song, I Love L.A., on the surface, we love it, right? I mean, who it doesn't? how could it not instill that pride of L.A.? But... You look at it, again, it's a juxtaposition. It celebrates living the dream. Look at that mountain. Look at those trees. I mean, it sounds like me on an L.A. freeway. But look at that bum over there, man. He's down on his knees. I mean, in Newman's own words, it's an aggressive ignorance. He likes the nasty redhead riding in an open car. And this is an interesting point to me. Randy Newman, the songwriter, said, maybe people in L.A. have to apologize for those basic joys in life. And I don't know why. We're the only city that has to do that. And that is kind of a thing. When people talk shit about L.A., take your friends on the East Coast. It's like, oh, it's sunny. You never need to do anything. You'd be lazy. Like, what? Okay, cool. What? What? Do I need to apologize for that? So... Newman incorporates Century Boulevard, Victory Boulevard, Santa Monica Boulevard. And the funny thing is any of those roadways, any of those streets, they're big, they're long. These are grand concourses here in LA. You see some of the wealthiest areas and some of the poorest areas in LA. So it's kind of an answer to the historical smugness towards LA from New York, from San Francisco. And Newman says the song, it's saying that this is not a bad place to live. If he wrote it today... (laughs) It would pretty much be the same, but I'd add a couple lines about the traffic. It's much worse now. I'd be in the convertible, but I wouldn't be moving as fast. And he says this song is appropriate. If you're driving 70 miles an hour down a freeway, if you're in a convertible, if you're singing at a playoff game, and if you're smiling when you sing it, you're smiling for the right reasons. And that's why I love LA. That's why I love LA gets a special mention for the most important songs about Los Angeles. Okay, now, on that note, with my one thing to do in Los Angeles this week, you gotta go see some music. Go take in a show. Specifically, at the Ford Theater, which is my favorite venue and probably the most underrated and underappreciated in Los Angeles, in my opinion. This Ford Theater, and it's funny because it's, kind of right by the Hollywood Bowl. It's 
You get off, where do you get off? Like Kawanga, somewhere over there. It's across this thing called Pilgrimage Bridge. But you drive up, even when you're in the parking lot, yes, it's kind of stacked parking, just like the Hollywood Bowl. But it's, you're like, where? where's the venue? It looks like, almost like apartment buildings or something where you park. But then you walk up this little hill and it's this magnificent, cute, but ornate. I don't even know how to describe the architecture, sort of like a castle let's say but but tastefully done and then you get inside to your seats 1200 seats so intimate and you are nestled nestled right there in the mountains there's palm trees and it is beautiful you are the acoustics are amazing and it's just such an awesome place to take in a show of any kind we had tickets to a group called Best Coast that my wife and I had to give away once, but we went to Folklorico shows there and they really focus on international events, but also just any events that represent music and dance in Los Angeles. And truthfully, you can't go wrong. I, it's like the kind of place that doesn't matter what's going on there. Just go to take in that venue. I mean, I was taking pictures just how it's again nestled is the word that i think because you're right there and, and hollywood bowl is like yeah there's some mountains but this thing is like right up against them and it's just what an atmosphere so the ford theater go and don't get lost like my wife's dad did that was a real debacle one time when we went um and it is a little tricky because like i said you see the hollywood bowl you see the greek you see so fire the forum you kind of don't see the Ford from, from the street. So you're like, it doesn't seem like there's a venue there. and There's no real need kind of to go that direction. But so what is the Ford theater? How did it develop? Okay. So in the 19 teens, 1910s, there was an heiress of the Pittsburgh paint company, Christine Weatherall Stevenson. And she had a vision to open an open air theater and produce her own plays now in 1920 it opened and it was called the the pilgrimage theater because her play was called the pilgrimage play it was an adaptation of the life of christ and that was the purpose of this theater and that's that's why it's small and that's why it's intimate and she died 1922 so she only got to see that pilgrimage play two times but you know that cross right there on top of hollywood like you see it if you're driving on the 101 mostly going west which i think they call north um you see that cross on top of there you're like why is that cross up there well it's up there in her honor it's called the great hollywood cross technically it's called the hollywood pilgrimage memorial monument but it was erected in her memory because she basically single-handedly willed this theater to get done. And her play would be the very purpose of this, of this pilgrimage theater through 1929, where the original wooden structure was destroyed by a brush fire. But again, like I'm telling you, this thing, she picked the perfect place. The sound is great. It's, it's nature in, in the city, but in a dope venue. So, they wanted to build a new theater on the same site, but this time they did it with concrete and they designed it to evoke the gates of Jerusalem. And you'll see what I mean. I call it a castle, but I guess that's what it is. The gates of Jerusalem. It opened in 1931. 
And guess what they did? They brought back the pilgrimage play and they performed it there through 1964, interrupted only by World War II. And by this point, the LA County owned the land and had taken care of it and maintained the upkeep of the theater. But it kind of fell into a little bit of disarray, especially after the pilgrimage play was stopped by a lawsuit in 1964 and forced to close because of its religious nature, separation of church and state and all that. And by 1976, they renamed it the John Anson Ford Theater. John Anson Ford was an L.A. County supervisor, and he made some important contributions in the arts in Los Angeles, including founding the L.A. County Arts Commission. And he also supported the building of the Music Center and led L.A. County's acquisition of Desconso Gardens. So this man had a big impact on, the LA, on L.A. culture, so they named the theater after him, John Anson Ford. But it still didn't really catch its footing. Till the early 1990s, County Supervisor Ed Edelman made it his mission to preserve and improve the, quote, neglected and underutilized theater. He created a new arrangement, procured more budget, presented an ambitious summer nights program featuring solely local Los Angeles artists. And ever since then, the Ford has been not just a hidden gem, but a true jewel of a, of a music scene, of an impactful world, the world of Los Angeles music. The Ford Theater really is a special place, and that's where you're going to go. Whether or not you're taking in songs about L.A., going to the Ford Theater is important as it really is an overlooked and underappreciated treasure. And that's what you're going to do this week in Los Angeles. And that's our show. So thank you for listening to episode 34 of In A Minute with Evan Lovett. Each and every episode is a journey for me. Research, exploration, dialogue with you. And I hope you're enjoying it. And if you are, please give me that five-star rating. I'm, I say it, but I'm serious about it. It means a lot. It helps the algorithm. It helps me in the ratings. And if you love the show, leave a review. That would be super helpful. Every single review helps like big time. And the most recent reviews featured in the, in the episode snippet. So like if you really want to see your name kind of on the, uh, you know, when you scroll up to the next episode, you leave the most recent review. That'd be dope. And don't forget to follow and subscribe. Thank you again for supporting in a minute with Evan. Love it. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.